Good morning. Great to see each of you here this Sunday morning, and the sun is shining, telling us spring might be coming this year, and uh, just good to be in the house of the Lord. As we're in this season of our church year, in which we focus on uh, our partnership with God and people around the world in taking the gospel. Um, our mission services, uh, we had one last week, but we're also having one uh, here in another two weeks, in which a missionary will be here and sharing with us. And in two weeks, we're going to be receiving our faith promise. And I'll speak a little more specifically to that next Sunday, um, the matter of faith promise. But it's during this season of our church year that I try to help us to focus on the idea of trusting God, on the idea that God has blessed us and our responsibilities uh, to uh, the kingdom and to those who are lost. And so this morning we're going to continue that uh, with the topic of, can we trust God? Do you trust God? Do you really trust God? Okay. I hope that we will, as we go through the sermon this morning, it'll just be a tool that will help us process that question in our lives a little bit. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul wrote to Timothy and telling this young man who he was training in, to become a pastor, a leader, and he told them, him to do this. He said, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future, so that they may experience true life. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are rich? Two people. All right. I won't call them out. How many of you ever thought about being rich? Ever looked at that um, publisher's sweepstakes, $7,000 a week for life, and think, man, I could live on that. Huh? Well, let me share some good news with you. You are rich. We are rich. The church in America is rich. Now, I'm sure that you're thinking that, Bob, if you're talking about spiritual things, yeah, maybe we're rich. But if you're talking about my paycheck, uh, I think you got it wrong. I'm not rich. And really, our church, compared to a lot of churches, we're not rich. But you, be, you see, wealth is always measured in relative terms. So let me share some good news with you. If your family income, as you're preparing to do your taxes this year, you know, maybe you've already done them, and you see the paycheck for the whole year, if you have made $25,000 or more, you are in the top 10 percentile of income in the world. All right? 
90% of the world lives with less than what you have. If you have done your taxes and your family has received $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world personal income. 99% of the world lives on less than what you receive. Does that shock you? Are you rich? Remember that of the 7.6 billion people in our world today, almost half of them live on $2 or less a day. One billion of them live on a dollar or less a day. Most of us couldn't even get through our coffee break on that, could we? Are you rich? Every seven seconds, a child five years and old and younger dies of hunger. Just think about that. Every seven seconds, a child somewhere in the world is dying of hunger. Americans are said to throw away 14% of everything you buy at Walmart and take home with you. 40% of all the food generated in America is said to be wasted. 62% of us adults the doctor says we're obese. 34% of children are considered obese. You see, if you don't feel rich, it's because you're comparing yourself to people who have more than you, those that are above even the 99 percentile of global wealth. It's because we tend to gauge whether or not we are wealthy by the things we don't have. Okay? If you think, I need a bigger house, I need a better apartment, I need a nicer clothes, I need a better car, I, I, I need to be able to go out to eat more, then we don't feel rich when we look at what we don't have or what we wish we would have had. Again, richness is really based on relative expectations. When you realize that 93%, think about this, 93% of the world's population do not own a car. Does your family own a car? You're in the top 7% of the world population. Most Americans, or not most, 33% of Americans have three or more cars. All right? If you have two or three cars, you're, you're way above the 7%. We're up there in the super rich, okay? Our difficulty is that we see our American lifestyle as normative. This is normal. We can't even imagine people live in a different lifestyle than what we have. We don't realize, we don't believe that we're wealthy, and so we don't fully see our responsibility that comes with that to live generously. In fact, the Bible calls us just as much as the person, my friend that lives in Africa and he has a 10 by 10 house in which he has three or four children and a dirt floor. 
I'm also called to live sacrificially. Now that may look a little different, but I'm still called to live sacrificially as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's important that we put the American church in perspective. Simply stated, the American church is the wealthiest community of Christians in all of history. We're a part of that. We're a part of the wealthiest group of Christians in all of recorded history. How wealthy are we? The total income of those who call our churchgoers, not necessarily Christian in the sense of, you know, that we think of, you know, been born again, whatever, but just the churchgoers in America, is $5.2 trillion of income they generate a year. That's $5,000 billion a year that people who call themselves Christians in America have access to. It's part of their, their resources. And it would take just 1% of that, just 1% to alleviate poverty in that lowest 1 billion people that are trying to live on a dollar or less a day. Said another way, Christians in America, we make up 5% of the Christian population worldwide. Not of worldwide population, but 5% of Christians in the world are in America. And yet we have over half of all of the resources uh, of Christians around the world. So a lack of money is not our problem. So as the wealthiest Christians in the world, the, the nation of Christians, uh, how do we do in our giving to God, in our tithing, in our giving to the Lord's work, wherever. Here's the bad news. If we define tithing as 10% of our income that we give to church or to nonprofit ministries, only about 5% of Americans meet that threshold. For born-again Christians, those who say, I've been born again, and who claim that they have a personal relationship with Christ, the number goes up to 9%. And of those who are call themselves evangelical Christians, of which we would probably be fit into that, that uh, subgroup of, of, of American Christians, that we say that not only have we been born again, but Christ influences our life and transforms our conduct, that the most generous estimate raises that to 24%. 24% of those who are evangelical Christians tithe. Now, given our relative wealth, what does God say? Let's look at what the Word says about what he calls us as Christ's followers to do and to, get to be. In the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, God was speaking to the children of Israel and to their situation as they were facing living life. And this is what he says. Should people cheat God? This is God speaking. Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's army, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. 
Put me to the test. In the New Testament, the book of James, James is addressing the wealthy first century Christians who, who were, were, were not caring for those around them. And he said this, Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay, their cries of those who harvest your fields and have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. So, the American church if we're not tithing, well, then how much are we giving? What are we doing? The average American Christian, if we average it all out, in 2015, we gave 2.17% of our income to anything related to church. That other number, you know what that number is? That's how much American Christians gave during the Great Depression. During the Great Depression, we gave 33% of our income to the Lord's work. And ever since the Depression, it just keeps going down, down, down. We're getting wealthier. We have more resources, but our giving is less. Our, our, the, 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 the way it seems to work is the more God blesses us with, the less we feel we have to give to God's work. I think in every one of our Christian lives and our walk with God, we come to a point where a very simple question has to be asked. Can I really trust God? Can I trust him with my life? Can I trust him with my future? Can I trust him with my family? Can I trust him with my job? Can I trust him with my health? Can I trust him with my material possessions? And at some point, we have to get to the place where we either say, yes, I trust you, Lord, or nope, can't trust you. Now, maybe we don't express it, but we live out one of those expressions. The Bible says that our walk with God is a walk of faith. I was listening to Pastor Tony Evans this past week and enjoy his ministry. And he said something that, that caught my eye. He said this, he said, faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Does God tell the truth? He made some great promises. He said, if you do this, I will do this. And yet he said, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust him with that. At some point, we have to accept that. It's our trust test. It's a line that we'll either, when we cross it, we'll grow spiritually or we'll back away from it and shrivel in our spirit as we, as we live life just worrying about me. How can I learn to trust God more completely? In the book of Proverbs, the writer there, the Solomon, understood that trust really begins with himself, okay, with a personal inventory. As I read this, 
pay attention to all the personal pronouns. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. It's powerful if you read that and think about it and apply it to our lives. Uh, He understood that trust in God starts with a personal inventory of me. And I need to take responsibility of doing my part. And God says what? He will do his part. Now, is he trustworthy? Can I trust him with that? Where does everything that you consider yours come from? Where does everything that I possess come from? Deuteronomy says this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for He is, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. If we are wealthy, God has given us this ability. And He's given it to us not just to consume upon our own desires, but He's given it to us as Christians to help fulfill the Great Commission. We need to come to the place where we recognize that God is the source of life. Everything I own comes from him. He knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows my life. He knows my needs. He knows my desires. And he knows the world that is lost and in need. There's nothing hidden from him. He's sovereign. I love the little humorous story of a mother telling telling her daughter, who was coming of age of some of the facts of life, a little bit of the birds and the bees, as they say. And the little girl, when her mother was done, she had never heard these things, and she was shocked, and she turned to her mother, and she says, Mom, does God know these things? God knows that, and he knows every detail of your heart, every detail of your life, everything that you know and need. So why don't we give more generously to God? There are several things. One, we many times just don't think that I can give to God and meet my own needs. It's just a matter of economics. I don't have enough to do all that I want and still be able to give to God. So most of the time we start talking about our resources and our finances, we said, well, sure, uh, I'm not sure that I, I can take care of my family, meet my budget, and meet my own needs, and still give to God. Another reason that we don't give to God is because we just don't plan to give to God. We never think about it until after we've spent all that we've had. So he's not a part of our plan. He's not a part of our thinking as we make our budget for, for the week, for the month, for the year. Lack of planning. I encourage you, I, I encourage every family to go through the, the, the um, uh, financial peace uh, seminar that Katie and Brad do once a year or so. It, it's a wonderful way of helping you to look at your resources that God has given to you and how there is enough to meet the needs of your family and also to be faithful 
steward of what God has given to us. And then third, it just boils down to one thing. We just don't trust God. And we, we don't trust him that he can care for us if I do what he tells me to do. And so really, we're questioning the integrity of God. Will he keep his promise? So what does God say? Let me just leave you with a couple principles that I think we find in God's word. The first is the who's in charge principle. God is the owner. I am the manager. God is the owner, and we are, as the Bible term is, we are stewards uh, of what God has given to us. And so basically the question of that is, who's in charge of my life? Am I or is God? As Christians, we say we're following God, that God is in charge of our life. Do I live that? Who's in charge? The psalmist says the earth and everything that is in it belongs to God. He's the owner. The world and its people belong to him. So God entrusts me with certain resources uh, and certain giftedness and abilities. He entrusts that to me just as I would entrust a, a certain amount of my money to a stockbroker to invest for me. God is allowing me to have it. What happens, what happens when our stockbroker starts looking at our money as his? You end up with a Bernie Madoff, someone that is taking resources that were entrusted to him and spending them as if they were his and not one that he was a steward of. How do you feel if you, how would you feel if you had $25,000 that you had to invest and you took it to a stockbroker and said, I want you to invest this for me. And so he takes it and then you go back to him and he says, well, I'm sorry, but I needed a new car. And so I bought a new car. Um, really don't have anything to show you for it. Think you'd be furious? One of these days we're going to stand before God and God's going to say, I gave you this. What do you have to show for it? A stockbroker is certainly worthy of, of a generous commission for his endeavors, but we expect that that's going to be invested. And God expects that we, with the resources he has given us, not only take care of our family and our needs, but that we invest in the kingdom of God. One of these days, we're going to stand before God, and we're going to be a little bit like Ricky and Lucy. Remember the Lucy show? And Ricky comes in and tells Lucy, Lucy, you have some splaining to do. And we're going to have some splaining to do when we get to heaven, and we look at all the resources God has given us in our lifetime, And what have we done to help take the gospel to the world? The second is the give and grow principle. Practicing stewardship produces growth in my life. Some say, dedicate your heart to God and your treasure will follow. If you're really dedicated to God, then your money, God has that too. Jesus put it the other way around. He said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. See, it's a matter of a heart. Where is my treasure? Where is my treasure at? Is it just here in this world? Or do I have treasure in heaven? I'm thinking about eternity. If my heart, if my treasure isn't dedicated to God, my treasure is going to be where my, or my heart is going to be where my 
treasure is. So the question I have to ask myself, where is my treasure? That's something we need to chew on. Where is my treasure? God, help me to have it in the right place. You see, practicing good stewardship helps me to grow. It increases my faith. It helps me to become spiritually sensitive to what God is doing around me. It helps me to become fruitful in the kingdom. It helps me to not only receive a blessing from God, but that I can bless others. Uh, There is truth in that statement. And it's not that God's just trying to get something out of us, but there is truth in saying it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a joy in blessing others that you can't get anywhere else. Practicing stewardship, causing us to go, to grow. You see, Christian stewardship, what we're talking about here this morning, is not necessarily talking about trying to get more money for the church. God owns everything, okay? It's about growing in my Christian faith. It's about my walk with God. It's about me understanding the blessing of God in my life and, and, and how he wants to use that for the kingdom. It's living out, putting God first. That's what stewardship is all about. And then the third one is the do it now principle. Stewardship deals with our present resources. Someone said the person who waits to do a great deed to do a great deal of good at once will never do anything. In other words, if I'm saying, well, when I get this, when I have this, when this happens, then I'll do. We'll we'll always put it off. There's always a reason to move the the goalposts down the road. Uh, There's an old poem that reads, procrastination is my greatest sin. It brings me endless sorrow. I'm going to stop doing it. Perhaps I'll start tomorrow. We all have been there where we put off what we know. So let's ask the question, how long am I going to wait with the resources that God has given me, financial, my gifts and abilities, my time, all the things that is me, how long am I going to put off using them before I do something right now? When is the right now moment going to come in my life? You see, most of us have the tendency to say, well, sometime... I, I think I'm, I'm going to really find out what my spiritual gifts are and I'm going to do something for God. I'm, I'm going to really, you know, at some point I'm going to be financially stable where I'm going to really do something for God. What are we doing with the gifts God has given us right now? It's our present, it's our present resources that God is concerned about. Can you imagine appearing before God who gave you everything that you have, and he looks at you, and he wants to know what you did with them, what are we going to say? What are we going to say? Because we are going to face it. We are going to face it one day. Someone said too many Christians just sit in pews on Sunday somehow thinking they deserve a purple heart for showing up. What are your gifts? This isn't just about money. What are your gifts? What has God blessed you with? What are the passions of your heart? Are any of that translated into the kingdom? Into sharing what God has blessed you with? Abilities? Gifts? 
You see, we're going to be held accountable for what God has given us. There's going to be a day when I stand before God and he said, what I have to present will either be gold, silver, and precious stones, things that don't pass away, don't get corrupted and eroded, or he said, the things that I have done with my life will be like hay, wood, and stubble, straw. Some of us are going to have a pretty big bonfire on that day, aren't we? Because all we did was live for now. All we did was live for the, the material possessions and right now living. And God said, we've got to live beyond the right now and think of heaven. What are we sending, what are we sending, depositing in heaven for eternity? The only things that are going to heaven are people, okay? The only things that are going to heaven uh, are souls. And so what am I doing in investing in the eternal the eternal nature of other people's souls. That's what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is about reaching the lost here, near and far, as they say. I love the story of the really rich guy who became a Christian and became a uh, prosperity gospel kind of preacher. And he went from town to town telling his story and he tells the story of how he had twenty dollars to his name that's all he had he was in church one sunday and the offering plate came around and god said put that twenty dollars in the plate and so he put it all in and as a course it changed his life and he's become a multi-millionaire and he's going around saying if you will do this god will bless you look at me Everywhere he went, everybody loved his story. He was in Toledo one time, and sharing his story, everyone clapped, but there was a dear old lady down front that raised her hand, and he said, yes, ma'am, you have a question? And she said, let me understand, I get this right. You only had $20, it was all you had. And you gave it all to, all 20 of it to God, and he made you rich and famous. Yep, that's exactly how it works. And now you're a multimillionaire. Yep. That's exactly right. I have just one thing I want to ask you. I dare you to do it now. <laughs> it's one thing when I had $20. I, but you see how the more we have, the harder it is to let go of it? The richness that we have is a blessing, but it's also a curse for us spiritually. Because we hold on tighter and tighter. The more we have, we can't let go. And God is saying, I want you to hold it like this, with an open hand. The fourth principle, who's number one? God deserves to be first in everything. There's a tendency, instead of giving him our best and giving him our first, that we tend to give him our leftovers in life. Jesus was asked one time, Teacher, what is the most important com commandment in the law? And Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength. That's the first and most important commandment. Put God first. Proverbs says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. God tells us over and over in the Scripture there's this principle of giving Him the first, not the last. In the Old Testament, they were to bring in the first fruits of their crop 
to, the, to, to God. And our human tendency is to give him what is left. God, I don't need this so you can have it. And that's many times all God gets is what's left over in our life. And not just finances, but our energy, our time, our abilities. He gets whatever is left. We look at our paycheck and we, we say, well, you know, I'm not sure I can afford it. Any of us receive far more than most of the world. One of the most humbling experiences that I, I've had was a time that we were invited as we go every couple years to Swaziland and hold the pastor's conference. And I think Tammy was along on that trip and was also one of the presenters. And we were asked to share on the topic of giving, of this very thing that we're talking about here, putting God first. And I'm speaking to a group of pastors that if they made $10 a week, they were probably doing really good. Most of them didn't get anything. And I'm supposed to talk to them about the putting God first in our finances. But you see, the thing is, they knew they needed that because it's not a matter of how much I have, it's a matter of do I trust God with what I have? And so whether I have $10 or 10000 the principle is the same. Will I put God first? Will I trust him to take care of my needs uh, if I put him first? And God said, try me. Test me. Where do I put God? Is he first? Or is he second or third or 27th on my list of things that are really important in my life? Where is God in your life right now. And when the Lord said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, he's basically saying this, if you'll just show me your checkbook, I can show you where your priorities are. That's what he's saying. Maybe not your checkbook, maybe it's your debit card <laughs> receipt or whatever it is now. But how do I spend, just get a breakdown, and we can see where our priorities are. We all have priorities. We all have needs. And God said, are, am I at the first or do I get something of what is maybe left over? So God is calling us to test his promises. I challenge you to test his promises. I love what Mother Teresa once said. She said, I know God will not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. <laughs> do you know why God trusted Mother Teresa so much? It's very simple. Because Mother Teresa had proven herself to be trustworthy. God trusts those who are trustworthy. Do I trust him? Every great Bible character, we could go through their lives, come to what I might call a trust test. Am I really going to trust God? Or am I going to do it my way? Just a couple of those in closing. Noah. Noah was asked to build an ark. Any of you ever built an ark? From what I read, it was a pretty big job. And he asked him to do it, to build a boat in an area where there wasn't any water and it had never rained before. Okay? You think you might have a few questions about that? But it says, Noah obeyed 
And in chapter 7, verse 6, it says, And Noah did according to all the Lord commanded him. He built an ark away from any body of water in a period of time when it had never rained before and believed God that if he said he would do it, that God would somehow provide water for that thing to float. Noah passed the trust test. Abraham was asked to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to take him uh, and offer him as a sacrifice to God. He and Isaac went up Mount Moriah, and Isaac asked him, where is the sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham said, son, God will provide. Now Isaac's on the altar. He's tied up. Abraham's hand is drawn to plunge in to sacrifice his son. And God says to Abraham in that moment, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, against Isaac. Do nothing to him. And notice these next words. For now I know that you fear God, since you did not withhold your only son from me. Abraham passed the trust test. Joshua stands at the Jordan River. You know the whole story. Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They had come to the Red Sea, and you've seen it on the Ten Commandments. He held out his, his rod, and there the waters parted. That rod of God was held out over the waters. Jump ahead to Joshua. They're standing at the Jordan River, not quite as wide as the Red Sea, but you still had to get across with several million people. And so he goes down to part the waters. Can you imagine the people hollering at him, hey, Joshua, you don't have your rod. How are you going to get down there? You don't have a rod. How are you going to part this water? You know how Moses did it. You got to have a rod if you're going to part the waters. Get your rod. But God didn't want Joshua to use a rod. That time they were to go, and he said, when the priests put their feet in the water, it will part. And so they did. God didn't want them to trust the old methods or the methods they thought would work. He wanted them to trust God. There wasn't any power in the stick that, that, that uh, uh, Moses had. It was in the faith of the man that put the stick out that God used. And so it was in, in Joshua, he wanted him to understand that it wasn't anything that he did, it was what God was doing. And as soon as the water parted, the next verse says, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived among the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River so the people of Israel could cross. They lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. And they went in and they possessed the promised land. Joshua passed the trust test. And then finally David. You remember the story of David and Goliath? How David came to the camp where his brothers who were in the army were at a standoff with the giants, uh, uh, the Philistine and the giant that represent them, their champion, Goliath. And, and uh, uh, you know, David said, well, why isn't anybody going up against him? All that story, and finally said, I'll go. And when Saul, the king, heard that this little young lad was going to go out against Goliath, he called him in, not necessarily to stop him, But it says, Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with his armor. Now just stop there a moment. 
Who was Saul? Saul was the king. You remember when he was chosen to be king, it says that he was a head and shoulders above everyone else in the children of Israel. He was probably 6'4", 6'5", at least. Probably weighed 250 or more. David was a kid, a teenager. Maybe 5'6", 130 pounds at the most. And can you imagine him putting on Saul's armor and trying to make that fit? And so David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. David passed the trust test. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust what God has given me. So here's how it works. Noah trusted God, not for the familiar, not for the things he understood, but just because God said it. Abraham trusted God and not his personal feelings and his love for his son. He loved God more. Joseph trusted in God and not the methods uh, that had been handed down and say, this is how you have to do it. But God said to do this and he was willing to do it. David trusted in God and not in man's armor, but only on God to protect him. They all had to take the test, trust test. You and I have to take the trust test. And here's how God lays it out in this area of our life, in the promises that we looked at, and, and, and then finish up here with the rest of that chapter. In Malachi chapter 3, it says this. God is talking. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the window of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't be, have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. God said, I will provide for you. Now that's not Bob Croft's test. That's not the Hyde Wesleyan Church test. That's God's test. He says, if you put me first, and not second or third or 27th, but first, I will pour out. Here's what I found. In the areas that I obey, God blesses. In the areas that I disobey, God disciplines. Powerful biblical principle there. The second thing in this last few verses, he will protect us. He said, your crops will be abundant for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will fall from the vines before they are ripe. So they will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God said he will protect us. And then he finally says our lives, because of what we do, will be attractive to others. All the nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's army. This is the only place in the Bible where we are specifically called and asked to test God. He says, test me in this. You don't believe me? Test me in this, he says. And I want to challenge you this morning to take God's word of what he says. And again, I want to make this very clear. This is not an issue of money. It's an issue of trust. Am I willing to trust God? It's not just money, it's my life, it's my time, my abilities, the, all the resources that God has given me. Do I trust him by giving him first of what he has blessed me with? It's an issue of whether I believe God has integrity. Can 
God said it. Can I trust him to fulfill his promise? More importantly, can God trust me? Can God trust me? Am I trustworthy? One of the things that excites me about our church, and I know this message comes across as, you know, kind of, maybe you feel I'm pointing a finger, but it's not. It's a thing that we all need to be challenged in because we live in a culture where we're rich and it's easy to hold on to. But one of the things that does excite me about our church is that we do have a vision for the world. We do have eyes that sees beyond just this. We love our community and we want to reach out. We love the world and we are trying to bless those near and far. We're not just having church for ourselves and sit here in our church pews and kind of gumming it to death until Jesus comes. But we understand that there is a work to be done and we're willing to do it. I challenge you that we be faithful, that we look at our lives and honestly ask, uh, do I trust God? Does my life look like it trusts God? Or am I going to have some splaining to do when I stand before him? I'm going to stand before him. We are in this season of our church year where we're focusing on missions. And yes, there is that $100,000 that we're hoping to raise in the coming year so that we can meet our obligations or what we have promised our missionaries. God has a place for every one of us to fulfill that. As I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the students at EWBC made a faith promise of 10,000 rands. And Dorcas, I was talking to her last night, and she said that they are now up, I think, over 25,000 rands. Those are kids that don't even have enough money to buy soap, many of them. And yet they said, God, you can do that through me. And they do it. And they're using that money to plant churches in Malawi, another country in Africa. What does God want to do through me? He has blessed us abundantly. Let us live not like this, but let us live like this so that we can truly be blessed, not just with financial riches, but with the smile of God upon our life. I ask you, will you join us in this? This is not just our vision. This is the kingdom vision. And we're calling you to be a part of that, to join in what God is doing, not just with your finances, but with your actions. What does God want to do through you to help us reach the world for Jesus Christ? I am proud to be a part of what God is doing. Join us in that. Shall we stand? Father God, thank you. Thank you for the blessings you have blessed us with. It certainly has made our life easier compared to most of the world. But Lord, help us to also see the responsibility that comes with that. Help us not to be the Bernie Madoffs of the spiritual world 
Help us that when we stand before God, we lift our heads heads high and hear you say, well done, great work. What a great investment you've made. Lord, I pray that you will help us to meet and exceed our faith promise goal as we each are obedient to you in this partnering to take the gospel to those who need it so desperately. Lord, we're going out into the world this week and it's not just that we came to church and gave our money and put in a little bit of time here. Help us to realize that we're stepping out of here into our mission field. Help us to be your hands and feet, to be your voice. We ask in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.